let me actually pray for us as we come and we have a look at this portion of the Bible. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself in and through your word. We thank you, Father, for the weeks we've had looking at this wonderful book, which is a story of your love, our rebelliousness, and your ongoing commitment to us. Help us now, Father, as we come to the end of this book. We do pray and ask that you will not just help us understand your words in the Bible, but that you might also bring it to bear in our lives. And we do pray and ask this, that your spirit might do this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. People take photos to capture moments, don't they? Which is why, you know, that's the beauty of our mobile phones these days. Snapshots of their children enjoying ice cream. I see a lot of those online because it's school holidays right now. Snapshots of sunsets before you. Snapshots of the day out with the family on the harbor. Snapshots at the table of of the weddings you've been to. Lots of those because it's wedding season. Uh, Nights out bowling on date night. I haven't seen that one yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to that one. I, someone here went out on a date last night. I found out there were bowlings. I'm waiting to see those. Uh, snapshots of the foodie places that you visited in Melbourne. There's a couple of whole group at Bowood PM actually at Melbourne right now watching us. So we expect to see snapshots soon online. Uh, people take snapshots, don't they? To capture moments we want to remember. And it's always the best pictures we keep. It's always the ones we post on Instagram. It's the ones that bring us the greatest delight. But I'm pretty sure that amidst all the snapshots, there's always the ones we leave out. Ones that we don't want to remember. Ones that are embarrassing. Ones that are rude. Ones that make you cringe. And we never post those ones up. Some people were at my home last week, and obviously I videoed some of the activities, and I never posted them. And, and you know, five days in, is like Adrian actually posts, and he says, hey, have you got that one that you videoed? Can you send it to me? And I said, sure, why not? But please don't post it. And so they're always the ones that never make the light of day. You just want to delete them. Now, I want to say to you, this is what's happening in this part of the Bible in Hosea, chapter 8 to chapter 11, as we come to the end of this book, because this is the family album, God's family album, and what you have are not just the snapshots that are memorable, <clears throat> delightful, the ones you want to keep, but you've also got the ugly ones, the ugly ones, and they're actually posted side by side in these chapters. Uh, there's no airbrushing, uh, there's no Photoshop, uh, there's no beauty filter, In this family album, you've got the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the memorable and the ones you want to forget, the ones that bring delight and the ones that simply bring shame. That's what you find uh, in this particular portion of the family album. And so if you come with me to chapter 11, this is what you begin to discover. And we'll move around in chapter 8 to chapter 11. But I want to start with chapter 11 because uh, in chapter 11, we have what we call are the highlights of the family album, God's family album, and it's portrayed for us as snapshots of a father and his son. Memories of a father and his son. Pictures of a father and the son. Uh, The story of God and his people uh, is portrayed in this picture. A father and a son whom he loves. Uh, A father and a lost son that he adopts and makes his own. And so uh, in your outlines, here's the first point you see there. Here's a walk down memory lane as you go through the snapshots of the early years. Israel is an adopted son. And so have a look. Chapter 11, verse 1, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt I called my son. And now look at verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms. And then verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them, to provide for them. And so the first thing you discover is that the family album, God's family album, is marked by great love. Uh, The story uh, actually begins with a child not born in privilege, uh, a child not born in the family home, not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. The story begins with a child living in great despair, uh, in foster care, not just in foster care, but in an abusive home. And you see there in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Israel, I called, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so the first thing you discover is that Israel, the people of God, is an adopted son. Israel is actually a son that's living in Egypt, a son who is fatherless, a son who's been fostered out. Uh, And if if you know anything about Egypt, you, you discover in the book of Exodus that this son is living under an oppressive yoke, the yoke of slavery. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, living under oppression, experiencing bitterness, Exodus 1 verse 14, treated ruthlessly, Exodus 1 verse 14, living in misery, Exodus 3 verse 7, crying out and suffering, Exodus 3. And here we read, I loved him out of Egypt, I called my son. Now it's worth pausing for a moment because God has not loved them because they're, they're the most beautiful kids in the world. Uh, If you were here at Vision Sunday last week, remember one of the things I actually said is that uh, in the world of adoption, there's a category of kids that are called hard-to-place children. Israel is a hard-to-place child. And so God did not love them and make them his own because they had potential. Uh, God did not love them and adopt them because they somehow had done enough good for him to adopt them. In fact, they're nothing. Uh, Israel, you have to understand, the nation of Israel in the ancient Near East, they're an insignificant drop in the ocean. No one would care, notice, if the nation of Israel just disappeared. In fact, uh, let me read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8 to you. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8, Moses reminds the people of God, and he says to them, the Lord did not set his affection on you. He did not choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. Now, if you're going to pick a winning team, you pick the powerful Here we read, the Lord did not choose you because you were powerful. In fact, it says, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. That's why he chose you. That's why he adopted you. Uh, Years ago, I read a book uh, on a theology of adoption by Russell Moore. And I often tell the story. And I keep coming back to this book. And I reread this book because it's a reminder to us of what God's grace looks like. We are all adopted sons and daughters. Uh, And in his book, Russell describes the adoption of his two boys from an orphanage in Russia. And he actually recalls the very first time he saw these two boys at this Russian orphanage. Two boys, hard-to-place children, that a Russian judge had picked out for him. Two boys that were abandoned, two brothers really, that had been abandoned, dumped by their mother, orphans. And this is what he writes. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, where we were led to the boys, the Russian courts had picked for us, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench, to the squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs. They were in the dark, lying in their own waste. Each day we would visit them, and leaving them at the end of the day was painful. 
But leaving them on the final day before going home to America to wait for the paperwork to come through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. He writes, walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I, that is his wife, could hear Maxim calling out to us, falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. Then he writes, I turned and walked back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hands on both their hearts and I said, knowing they would not understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he writes, I don't think I consciously intended to cite the words of Jesus from John 14. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. For us, it didn't matter that it seemed like that they looked like any other orphan in the institution. I looked at them, and they were now part of our family. We knew them, we loved them, we claimed them. And it didn't matter. For the next few weeks, they'd still be called Maxim and Sergey. The nameplates hanging on the wall of their new room in a faraway country read, Benjamin and Timothy, now our sons. Now, I want to say to you, that's the picture here in this family snapshot of God and his adopted son, Israel. And you want to know what? It's your picture as well. It's my picture as well. Because we are adopted into this family. Israel living in bondage, squalor, darkness, afraid, crying, without hope, without a future, fatherless. And God comes and he says to them, I have loved you. I've come for you now, my sons. That's what you read in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 3, it was I who taught Israel to walk, taking them by the arms, holding them up. Uh, I led them, verse 4, with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their necks, the yoke of pain and suffering and oppression, and bent down to feed them, to provide for them. So that's the first thing in the family album. But you know, things are not right in this family album, right? Because interspersed in these snapshots are some very awful pictures. Uh, and, and so if you look with me now, pictures that you just never show. Uh, in our lives, we have those things that we never disclose, the skeletons in the closet you never share. You know, like that SBS show that some of you have watched, you know, who do you think you are? You know, the, the skeleton in the closets get revealed. And there's stuff we never share with other people, stuff in our family that people are unaware of. But God is not in the business of hiding the truth, is he? And so, as you walk through the family album, uh, interspersed between all the beautiful, all the nice shots, you have photos of scandal, photos of shame. And so have a look with me, uh, again, at chapter 11. Notice what we read in verse 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And then you read, but the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, Israel to walk, taking them by the arms, and then, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. And so, you've got a picture of love that is spurned, of love that's rejected, uh, or love that's simply forgotten. Uh, the cold shoulder of an adopted son who forgets the one who has loved him, 
carried him and provided for him. Look at verse 2. The more I called, the more I loved you, the more I provided for you, the more you ran, the more you defied me. That's the picture of a people who instead of loving and acknowledging the one who has loved them, the one who has provided for them, the one who has protected them, turns instead to give praise and thanksgiving and acknowledgement to something else or someone else. Uh, In fact, that's actually the picture as well you have in Hosea chapter 10. In Hosea chapter 10, we read uh, of the nation of Israel, and and this is how it's described, chapter 10 verse 1, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, as he became prosperous, the more successful he became, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. What does his adopted son do? Well, the Bible is actually saying that as Israel experienced prosperity and success, fruitfulness, he builds more altars, he bows down and worships other gods. As his land prospers, he adorns it with sacred stones. He creates places of worship to other gods. And so success and prosperity and abundance has led to what? Has led to contempt and conceit and forgetfulness for who has fed them, who has clothed them, who has blessed them, who has provided for them. And so God says, the more I called, the more you ran from me. The more I provided, the further you ran from me. The more I gave you, the further you run. That's the pattern in this rebellious son. Now, I want to say to you that, you know, we read a passage like this and we think, well, how foolish, isn't it? God provides and they run. Uh, God actually protects and they create other places of worship in their lives. But when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you discover that the very same sins dog the people of God. The New Testament people of God. Uh, The very same thing is happening in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. I mean, we're going to look at the book of Romans next year. We're going to look at the first seven chapters of uh, the book of Romans. Uh, I think we're spending about 22 weeks in that. But the opening chapter of the book of Romans actually gives us a picture of a people who are living in God's world. They experience His abundance. They experience His provision and His protection. And we tend to think when we are successful, when we have achieved We tend to think, look at what I have accomplished. Look at my success. Look at what I've earned. Look what I've achieved. And we forget that it all comes from the hand of a gracious and good God. And so the sin in Romans chapter 1, let me read that for you. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, we read, For although they knew God, they neither glorified God, neither did they give Him thanks. What's at the heart of sin? The refusal to acknowledge that there is a giver of all the good things I enjoy. And so they refused to give him thanks. And then we read, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in their wisdom, right, in their wisdom, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged the giver with things in the creation. They exchanged the giver with the gifts. And so in the face of God's blessing and provision, we run from the creator, the giver of the gifts, of the intellect that we have, of the successes we enjoy, the giver of the opportunities that have led to prosperity and blessing. In the face of success and abundance in our lives, we worship and we praise not God, but everything else in our lives. And so, you know, people who've got a successful business, well, it's not because they're smart, but because the creator gave them the the intellect and the opportunities, which is why to make much of yourself when you're successful is foolish. Not just foolish, it's wicked. Maybe you're at the top of your game in your career, okay? And, you know, 
you think you're smart, right? But the Creator gave you the intellectual abilities that you have to be born in a family that could afford to put you in a particular school so that you could get the marks to get into a particular university so that you could actually have those degrees. And then He gave you the opportunity to actually put you in a place that gave you opportunity to excel in your workplace so that you might climb and have the career that you currently have to make much of yourself and to think of yourself as a self-made man or woman is not just foolish, it's wicked. I said this morning, you know, and if you're a family here, because I know we've got some families down the back, sometimes, you know, families have kids and they've got very gifted and smart kids. And I said, you know, if you have smart kids, in fact, if you have obedient kids who sleep well and who are compliant and who study hard, well, it's not because you've got great genes. It's not because you're wonderful parents, so parents take note, but because God gave you those kids and wired them up to be who they are. And so to make much of yourself and your kids is not just foolish, it's wicked. And so what we're meant to realize is when we read a passage like this, we're not meant to go, oh, Israel, oh, they're bad, I'm so much better. No, we're meant to read this passage and go, you know what, we're just like Israel. We just don't realize it. That's the skeleton in your family album this morning and this evening when it comes to God, hidden away and unseen. Now, come with me to Hosea chapter 8, because when you get to Hosea chapter 8, come back to Hosea chapter 8, where chapter 11, we're moving to chapter 8, because Hosea chapter 8 actually gives us a full-blown picture of what this rebellious son actually looks like, okay? So I'm going to run through that really quickly, because here is what the blown-up version, right? So chapter 8 is what we call uh, the money picture, the money picture of scandal. Well, here's the pattern, right? Chapter 8, verse 2 to verse 3, Israel, my adopted son, cries out to me, chapter 8, verse 2 to 3, Oh, our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. Now, that's the pattern. We acknowledge you, but we pursue something else or someone else. We love you. We say we love you, but we live running after other lovers. We say you're everything to us, but other things are more precious to us. We say you are our comfort and security, but we look elsewhere for comfort and security. And so uh, what you discover is that behind the veneer of praise uh, and worship, this is what you're going to find. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, one of the sins of Israel was distorted worship. They went through the motions of sacrifice. They sing God's praise. They offer the sacrifices, but their hearts are distant. In fact, in the hidden places of their heart, they worship other gods. And so this is what you find here. Israel cries out, oh, our God, we acknowledge you. But then we read, they reject what is good. So what did they reject? Well, look at verse 4, okay? They set up kings without my consent. They, cho- they chose princes without my approval. Where there's silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. They surrender, basically, to other kings, other princes, other authorities. Why? Because they think another power can give us the security we need. Another power can give us the wealth we desire. Another power, right, can give us the provision we seek. So something is someone else, a higher power. We say it's God who is our king who can do it, but then we look elsewhere. And then look at verse 5. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a craftsman has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. So what did they do there? Well, the Bible's actually saying they create objects to worship in their lives. 
So they created things. This is what we will live for. This is what we will worship. This is what we will make the center of our lives. We say it's God we worship, but we reject Him and we create substitutes in our lives. Alternative treasures to worship and build our lives around. Now, as you come to verse 11 and verse 13 in chapter 8, come down to verse 11 and 13, you discover that they're also religious. In other words, they do the church thing, they do the sacrificing, they're regular in worship. But then we read they have multiplied altars in their lives, multiple lovers in their lives. And then come down to verse 14, we read, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire upon their cities that will consume their fortresses. In other words, the Bible is actually saying that they put their security and they put their trust in their fortresses, their buildings, their achievements, effective, what they have built, the work of their hands, their investment properties, their solid careers, right? Their stocks, as it were, their cryptocurrency. We say it's God is our strength and security, but in our lives we run and we anchor instead in our strength and security in our achievements. Now, this is God's snapshot of Israel, and it's not very pleasant because this is what a rebellious son looks like. A son who is loved, but a son who is rebellious, who says one thing, but whose life reflects another. A passion for substitutes marks this rebellious son. And, and that's always the danger, isn't it? And so, you know, pause for a moment because it's really worth asking, isn't it? If God took a snapshot right now of your life, if he took a snapshot of your life right now, what would it reveal about his place in your life? Right now, right? No one can see, but God can. And he takes a snapshot of your life right now. What would he find? What would it reveal about his place in your life? Would he find substitutes? And that's why, you know, when you read the warnings of Jesus in the Gospels, the warnings of Jesus are to his disciples. I mean, you read Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 and verse 24, right? Jesus warns his disciples to be watchful. Why? Well, we read Matthew 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he says, no one can serve two masters. Did you hear that? No one can serve two masters in life. He will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and your work. You cannot serve both God and your house God and your career, God and your children, God and your business, God and your studies. You cannot serve both God and the desire for power. You cannot serve both God and the desire for recognition. And so you've got to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you can't have a successful career. Jesus is not saying don't love your family. Jesus is not saying don't be a diligent student. If you're a student, you should be the best student ever. If you're a worker, you should be the best worker and professional you can be. Jesus is saying, don't make those things your ultimate treasure in life. 
Don't make those things your ultimate treasure in life. Don't make them the altars of your security and your worth and your value and your significance and your satisfaction and your security. Your treasures in life are a snapshot of the substitutes for God in your life. And so this is what we see in this family album. Sons who are loved, but sons who are rebellious. Now, here's the third snapshot. Uh, It comes to us in chapter 8, verse 14. At the end, you think all is well in the house. That's what you think. You think it'll be like this forever. No. Verse 14. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns. And then you read, but I will send fire upon their cities that will consume their fortresses. And then verse 1 of chapter 9, Do not rejoice, O Israel, do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail. They will not remain in the Lord's hand. Ephraim, which is Israel, will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. And so what's God saying there? Well, he's actually saying everything that you've put your security in, everything you've put your confidence in, he says, I will remove and I will destroy. You see there? Your fortified towns, your great cities, your fortresses, I will burn to the ground. And then he says, you'll return to Egypt. You'll eat in Assyria. In other words, you go back to the place where I adopted you from. Remember Egypt, the place where you lived as a slave, where you lived under oppression, where your life was filled with misery? Well, you go back to Egypt. In fact, he says, you eat in Assyria. Assyria at the time was a rising superpower of the day. He says, that will be your new home because they're going to take you into captivity. You're going to go into that land and you're going to be slaves in that land. That's God's way of saying, you go into captivity, prisoners to a foreign nation. And we know that's what happened to them. Now, it gets worse uh, in chapter 10 uh, as God announces the full weight of his judgment on his rebellious sons. So chapter 10, verse 7 to verse 8, Samaria, Israel, and its kings will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of, of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us and the hills fall on us. In other words, God's judgment will come upon the land and he will sweep them away. And when that day comes, he says, you would rather be crushed by the mountains and the hills. You would rather be buried alive than face his judgment. And so it's interesting, isn't it, in this family album, the same God who loves with a passion is also the God who is angered, who pronounces judgment, who acts with severity. And I know that some of us actually find that really, really hard to accept, right? Is it, is it right that God gets angry? And that really surprises people, not just in the church, but it really surprises people in culture because a lot of people in culture think, you know, if God is love, God should not judge. Isn't God supposed to be a God of love? How can love and anger coexist? How can love and judgment coexist? And I know a lot of people don't like the idea of an angry God or a God who dispenses judgment because we hear so often, God is love. And a loving God surely could not be consistent with a God who actually judges. Now, I want to suggest to you, and pause with me for a moment, right? I want to suggest for you that the most unloving thing God can do is to not be angry, to not be incensed in the face of injustice, in the face of rebellion, because it actually says he doesn't care. Uh, you know, um, we've got some parents down the back, right? Danny's a new parent. 
When you see your son putting himself in harm's way, let's say he decides to take a walk, he wants to cross the road by himself, right? When you see your children going down a different, uh, a dangerous path, when you see them live recklessly, you don't go, love is love. You do you, I do me, right? You don't go, I love you, I love them so much, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I love them so much, I won't discipline them. I love them so much, they can do whatever they want in life. That's not love. That's called indifference. That's called indifference. I have a friend in Queensland, much older than me. He was raised uh, in the free love generation. In other words, he was an ex-hippie, Woodstock generation. Uh, Before he became a Christian, uh, he told me in the early days uh, when he had children, he believed that to love his kids meant to let them do whatever they want to do in life, right? So his approach to child raising was what we call the free-range approach to child raising. So before he became a Christian, first eight years, he just let his children do whatever they want, sleep whenever they want, eat when they want, eat what they want, do whatever they want. First eight years. And you know what? He said, what I learned from all that, that first eight years of my three children, he says, what I got was chaos, little monsters, selfish, self-consuming little monsters. That's what I raised for eight years. And you know, that's the most unloving thing you can do to your kids. And it's the same here. God's anger and God's judgment comes out of his love for his rebellious children. He doesn't just call them. He doesn't just stand in their way. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that that's how God disciplines, right? He, he stands in the way to protect them. He also disciplines them. A God who is not angered by his rebellious sons is an unloving God. And so these words come to his rebellious sons as a word of warning to them, uh, as a word of warning to us to turn, to wake up, to remember. You ever realize this? God's word of judgment and acts of judgment has actually got a loving purpose. God disciplines, and when he disciplines, there is a loving purpose. It is to bring rebellious sons and daughters home. Uh, That's why, you know, you read other places. We're not looking at it today, but we read Hebrews 12. God's people are reminded why God disciplines. You know, if you're wondering, maybe there's things that are happening in your life. Maybe God is doing things in your life that are unpleasant, uh, things in your life that maybe you don't like, but maybe He's doing it to wake you up. And when He does that, He does it to bring you home. We read in Hebrews 12, God disciplines those whom He loves so that they might share in His holiness, so that they might experience His love and His goodness and His faithfulness. He does it so that we might run to Him and live. Now, here's the thing. Loved adopted son, rebellious son, angry and just God, but anger and judgment is never the last word in this family album. Because the God who declares judgment also does so with tears. And so have a look at chapter 11. Uh, We're coming back to chapter 11, verse 8 to verse 11. Despite the threat of judgment, He will not devastate them. Can you see it there? Verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim, Israel, that is? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma, the place of destruction? How can I I make you like Zeboim, another deserted place? He says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Compassion is stirred up in God as he sees not just the rebelliousness of his people, the brokenness of his people, their sin, as he brings judgment, he's moved to compassion. And so we read, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, Israel, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. 
And so despite how far you've run and fallen, how far you've broken his heart, trampled in his worth, notice God overflows with compassion. Instead of coming in wrath, he will not devastate. Now, what's really interesting, you read this passage, this passage right, um, Hosea 11, and you know, it runs very similar to Ephesians 2, doesn't it? Ephesians 2, verse 1 to verse 8. We looked at Ephesians 2 on Vision Sunday. Remember what I said? I said 2023 next year is not God, you know, it's like, you know, every Vision Sunday we always think of what, does, what are we going to do next year? What are our plans to grow, to, uh, grow the church? And remember I said to you on Vision Sunday, what does God want us to do? He wants us, firstly, to rejoice in His grace. To find ourselves with the roots of our lives deeply immersed in His grace. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 8, because we read Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. This is what rebellious sons look like. They are objects of God's wrath, dead in their transgression and sin, under judgment, totally deserving. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because we read in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God, who is overflowing in love, but God, who is compassionate. And that's what you find as well. Uh, in the parable of the lost son that Jesus tells in Luke 15, so many of us here, we're familiar with that story Jesus tells. The son who has everything in his father's home, who gives his father the cold shoulder, who has everything and abandons it all because he thinks he's getting better, more out there. And what happens in that story? He finds himself in a foreign land. Even more than that, he finds himself a slave in captivity to a pig farmer living in a mud pit. There he is eating the food of the pigs in a foreign land. And you know, when you read the story of the lost son, what happens in captivity? He comes to his senses. That's what discipline does. That's what judgment does. He wakes us up. He brings us to our senses. And he comes to his senses. And when he comes home, what does he find? A long way off, we read, he finds a waiting father filled with compassion. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He welcomed him home. And so the last word from a loving, compassionate father to his rebellious son, it comes to us in verse 10 and verse 11. Despite the threat of judgment, I will not devastate. I will not destroy you. Instead, we read verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, notice when he roars, what happens? His children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. He will regather. When he roars, he will regather. Ah, oh, yeah, they'll feel the full weight of judgment because notice, where are they? <laughs> they are in Egypt. They are in Assyria. They're far off, right? Yet even in judgment, we read, God will bring them home. He will regather them. Now, I do want you to notice God does not bypass his judgment, does he? They will come from the west, from Egypt, from Assyria. Now, when will this happen? It happens at God's signal. When the lion roars, when the lion comes. Now, I didn't say it when we looked at the book of Hosea, but um, the lion actually roars 
twice in the book of Hosea. Actually, three times, but twice. Okay, so there's two times you hear the lion roaring in the book of Hosea. And the first roar we read of is actually Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. So in Hosea chapter 5, verse 14, we read that God the lion roars. But when the lion roars, he comes to destroy and to judge. Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, Israel, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. He's speaking of captivity. The lion roars in judgment. But then here we read, the lion roars in salvation. You discover that God is also the lion who roars, who comes to save his people. The roar of judgment, but he comes with a roar of triumph and victory to restore his lost sons and his lost daughters, his rebellious sons and his rebellious daughters. And so it's really no surprise when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you discover that the great lion has come and roared in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our final passage for today. If you've got your Bibles, have a look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. So come with me to Revelation uh, chapter 5, verse 5. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, in, chapter, um, uh, in the book of Revelation, what's actually happening is God's people uh, are living in great despair. Uh, they are weeping in despair. And one of the questions they, 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 they ask God, as it were, is when will you come to restore us? When will you come to judge your enemies? And when will you come to save? Who is able to do this? And the answer comes in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. So we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. Uh, what does opening the scrolls mean in the book of Revelation? Basically, to open the scrolls is to execute God's purpose to judge and to save. And so how is this going to happen, right? How is, how is the line of Judah going to do this? Well, you come down to verse 9, verse, verse 9 of, of Revelation 5. Here's how he does it. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You, the line of Judah, are able to judge and to save. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. Notice, from every tribe and nation and people, Right? That's where the lion has roared in triumph and victory. That's where the lion has roared for God's sons and daughters because that's where God's judgment and salvation meet, where God's right anger and God's forgiveness meet because where the lion roars in both judgment and salvation, where God's wrath and mercy meet, where God's condemnation on sin and where His forgiveness meet, there at the cross, the line of Judah was slain. That's why Jesus died. So that rebellious sons and daughters might know the Father's compassion. So that rebellious sons and daughters might know the Father's mercy and forgiveness. God does not overlook our rebellion, our sin, and our guilt. Jesus is crushed in our place so that we might know the Father's forgiveness. He faces the wrath of the Father so that we might know the Father's approval. And so the great lion of the tribe of Judah has come in Jesus. And the lion actually roars both in judgment and salvation, right? In judgment, but also in great victory. That's the reason why at the cross, what was Jesus' final words? You hear those final words from Jesus. He says, it is finished. That's his final word. Judgment has come, but I have carried it. 
Wrath has been poured out, but I have borne it. It is finished, it's done, it's complete, over. And you know what? That's where the family snapshot ends. Not just a picture of adopted sons who are loved. Not just a picture of rebellious sons who are under judgment. Not just the picture of a rightly angered father. Not just a picture of a compassionate father who will not destroy his rebellious sons and daughters, but a compassionate father who will bring his sons and daughters home, who will restore them, who will make things right. And so the final snapshot in this family album is the line of Judah who roars. The final snapshot in your family album is God's people from east and west, every nation, every tribe, every language, gathered around the cross, the line of Judah, the lion who roars, the lamb who was slain, in whom justice and mercy has met, the one in whom wrath and compassion has come, the one in whom condemnation and forgiveness has arrived. Isn't that good news? I think it's great news. I think it's great news because as we look at the book of Hosea, I want you to understand this. Israel's family album is also our family album. Lost sons and daughters, enslaved sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, rebellious sons and daughters who live for substitutes, condemned sons and daughters under judgment, loved sons and daughters made right because of Jesus, the Lion of Judah who roars, who says, it is finished. I think is the best news ever. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you for Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who roars, who roars not just in judgment, who speaks judgment and condemnation on sin and guilt, but also the lion of the tribe of Judah who roars and speaks salvation for us. We thank you that you truly love us, that as we look at the family album in the book of Isaiah, we see not just adopted sons and daughters who, who run from you, who forget you, who are caught up in substitute worship of other gods and idols in their lives. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. Sometimes we thank you because you, are, you so love us that you actually sometimes discipline us in our lives to wake us up. And maybe, Father, some of us here this evening, maybe the stuff happening in our lives and you've shaken up our lives and we don't see that it's your hand of discipline at work. I want to ask, Father, that you just wake us up today so that we might actually see where we have come from and where you are bringing us to so that we might respond to you, not just in repentance and faith, but in thankfulness and joy as well. And so today, we want to thank you for Jesus, who spoke not just judgment, but bore it in his body at the cross for us, but who also spoke forgiveness so that we might know personally the compassion of the Father. And so we give you thanks in his name. Amen.